Well, I'm only just brave enough to admit that just last week I finished one of my mum's favourite books. Um, In part, I read it because it is her favourite, but it was Anne of Green Gables. Some of you might have seen the movie growing up. I'd seen the movie before, but it's a great book. It's wholesome, it's edifying, but as a disciple of Jesus, I must say when I'm reading books or even watching movies, I'm also interested as a pastor and as a disciple to think about the spiritual health of the characters. How will Anne of Green Gables stand before God on the last day? Anne loves nature. She's full of life. And she seems through the book to develop a sincere faith through, firstly, her love of creation. It's so all of creation speaking to her of God's goodness and kindness. But then also she becomes connected with uh, the pastor and his wife and the, the church family, and they all seem to speak into her life. I don't know. I haven't read the rest of the books. Perhaps some of you can tell me how she goes. Last week I watched the Tom Hanks movie, A Man Called Otto, an adaptation of the, the novel, um, A Man Called Ove. had the same thing. I, I feel affection for the characters in the movie, but also as a disciple I'm thinking about their souls. Otto is learning some lessons, but is he going to make peace with God before he dies? If I don't consciously think like a disciple as I go through life and as I'm exposed to the media, it could be I'll slip into the deception that everything's all right and that people are okay so long as their good might outweigh what they think is their bad or if they, perhaps like Darth Vader from Star Wars, Wars, just do good at the end and get across the line that way. Part of taking up our cross as as Christians is the weight of awareness about how God will judge the world for our world's rebellion against him. It's not a comfortable topic. It's not a light topic. It's not something I enjoy thinking about when I think of my loved ones and even strangers around me. It's far easier to tell myself, as the culture wants me to think and as I myself want to think, there's no sin problem. Uh, There's no future catastrophic judgment to worry about. And contrary to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, God's wrath isn't really against the whole world, is it, and the way the world rebels against him? So do we really need to stir things up by insisting on Jesus? That didn't seem to go very well for him in his life, did it, stirring things up? So perhaps we should just live as though every religion or no religion is fine. Let's adopt our corporation strategy or our neighbor's ethics as our own, and just let everyone go on their merry way. Now, all of this is tempting, but it denies what God shows us again today about what is plainly true. For the third and final week, how does God view the morality of humans? Do people really need the gospel in Rome and in Jermoyne and in Sydney today? Does the world need churches like ours to exist? Jesus' death on Calvary's cross, or is it okay to just try to be a good person, as our world will keep telling us. We must have clarity about what is true, even if it feels like a heavy cross to bear and one we'd prefer not to have. First then, in verses 9 to 12, the unmistakable message for the world is, if you're following in your paper outlines there, a good person you are not. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we, the Jews who have the law, have any advantage? In Paul's words, not at all. In Karl Barth's words, no one has an advantage in the face of God's judgment. 
Why, Paul? Well, Paul continues, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, all people, are all under the power of sin. Now, that's a different way to view Anne of Green Gables or Otto, isn't it? They're under the power of sin unless they find release and relief from that if they're outside of Christ. And even inside of Christ, sin has its grip on us all the time. Verse 10, as it is written, that is, as your own scriptures have been trying to tell you for centuries. And notice here we see four times coming through six different Old Testament passages to make Paul's point through this collage of passages. There is no one who can stand before God's righteous legal judgment and say innocent. No one. Righteous humans, you are not. Listen instead to what God says in his own words, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Our friends will be judged on that basis by the judge. And broth is the word God uses, is anger. And we've explained why, if you missed the last couple of weeks, you might want to go back last week or the week before to see how is, why is God angry. But we can slip into this kind of thinking so easily as though salvation by works is, is, is by works and not by God's sheer kindness and grace to us. As Simon gave an example in the kids' talk. But we can hear ourselves thinking, perhaps, if you're like me, but I'm a pretty good person, right? Or I haven't lived up to God's standard today, as though I did yesterday. Yes, we were created very good before the fall in Genesis 3. This isn't saying humans aren't very valuable. Each human has much dignity and is precious in God's sight. And sure, I take it you probably try hard like me and your moral fibre might be a bit better than some others around you and you could be worse than you are. But God, whose standard is perfect, says today there is no one righteous, not even one. Now, this is not meant to deny Jesus was righteous. It's meant to be a statement about humanity that Jesus came to save. The wrath of God in chapter 1 is not being revealed against good people. There are no good people. The Lord Jesus wasn't sent into the world to die on the cross for good people. There aren't good people. Unless you've spent time in Eden before, create, before the fall or in the new creation where things will be perfect at both ends, we don't even truly know what good looks like and feels like, let alone live in that zone of perfection. But I'm kind, you might say. Really? Paul's already cut down self-righteousness in chapter 2. Do you really care for others with the, the kind of standard of kindness that we see in the Lord Jesus? But I'm generous. Really? With all God's given you, you want to... To, to come before God and claim you are generous, do you? But I'm pretty selfless. Really? You want to go there for refuge before a God who knows all and sees everything? The good news is for Rome and the world is that God cure exists. But to receive his cure, humans must first accept their need of it. To have God's help, you have to trust, to agree with what he insists is our great problem. The liberating news of this ugly diagnosis, like the nail in the skull, the image we saw a couple of weeks ago, it is that we don't have to hide our problem, hide our sin, 
our shame, our mistakes, our regrets from God. It's not as though we have to relate with God and hope he doesn't remember this or that. The news is better than that. The news is he knows it all. And so we need not try a moment longer to save ourselves or wonder why we are the way we are. God tells us why we struggle the way we do. So if we don't want to go toe-to-toe against God himself, he offers amnesty that must be accepted before we face him in death. Humans are in a sin and judgment mess way over our head. Each person who faces God without Jesus as a refuge is doomed. A good person you are not. Now, sometimes you hear Christians who should know better naively speaking of sin as though it's an occasional slip-up, a minor blemish or two in an otherwise pretty solid week. Sin is more like a disease than a slip-up. Nothing we do, say, or think is unstained by sin. A quotation about the human sin condition from theologian Robert Raymond is printed in your service sheets. Again, I don't put it here because it's pleasant reading, but because it's helpful. He gives us the essence, the extract of what the 66 books of the Bible tell us about our fallen sinful condition. I'll read it in a moment. But you won't find this in Sydney's Child, Guiding Raising of Kids, or in the latest Child Raising Self-Help book. It isn't in the baby congratulations cards that we give to others. But sadly, it is true. Read it with me. I'll, I'll read it to you. Man in his raw natural state as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, his body, has been affected by sin. His understanding is darkened, his mind is at enmity with God, his will to act is slave to his darkened understanding and rebellious mind, his heart is corrupt, his emotions are perverted, his affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly. His conscience is untrustworthy and his body is subject to mortality. I'm glad our society tries really hard to help children, but it's operating from a very deficient understanding of the human problem and how deep it goes. Parents can wonder why they're failing as parents, why something so natural as raising other humans can be so difficult. The doctrine of sin helps us understand. It's an uphill battle. We're working against gravity of human nature. Counselors, police, teachers, grandparents are made wiser if they realise in Herman Bavink's words in the... I'll read the second quote to you. We may speak of the innocence of children, but it is only a relative innocence. The experience of all parents and teachers tells us that the seeds of all sorts of sins are present in children's hearts. Even less than the sensual sins, it is the spiritual sins of self-seeking, vanity, jealousy, lovelessness, pride, craftiness, deception, untruth, disobedience, stubbornness, and so on, that already surface in children at a young age, and if not checked by a wise upbringing, increase with the years. Friends, any household is a household of sinners, and they do far better as a household if they're aware of that. Don't you love chatting with those husbands who know that they are punching above their weight in marriage? Um, They tend to have good marriages, those men. 20 years on, they say, and I still can't believe she said yes. 
I know other husbands who never say sorry to their wives, husbands who think they are morally superior to their wives year after year. I know of wives who are constantly running down their husbands and treating them as incompetent. Parents who'd rather lash out or pretend they didn't make a mistake instead of admitting to their kids when they do make a mistake. Sorry, I misunderstood, I misunderstood what you said and got it wrong. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? To agree with God that there is none who is righteous is a very wise and very healthy thing to do for our relationship with God fundamentally, but also with the world around us, because it's true. There is no one, there is no one, there is no one, there is no one, four times, and again, later. So what does verses 10 to 12 mean? Does it mean that we only do evil all the time? I don't think it means that. I think it's more like the sweeping summary statement that we read in Genesis 6 as well, before the flood. That only doing evil all the time is generally true, even though there are some moments that are better than others. Do verses 10 to 12 mean people can't do good things? Again, no. We can thank God that in society many people do many good things every day. But even our best thoughts and actions don't approach the purity and perfection required to exist near God. Remember God says even to Moses, don't come any closer. Remove your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy. You're approaching the living God here who has zero tolerance for sin. Now my dad loves sayings. One of his sayings is the good are half bad and the bad are half good. That is don't write anyone off as completely terrible and evil. And don't put anyone too high on a pedestal. The good are half bad and the bad are half good. That saying is okay as long as we realise that even the half we might call half good is also corrupted. In his first letter, the Apostle John says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. What hope is there for someone Daring to have such a debate with God, calling God a liar when God says that we have sin in our lives. I'm a good person. No, you're not. Yes, God, I am. Or perhaps when we think of those we love around us, my friend is a good person. No, she's not. Yes, God, she is. The reality is that friend is cruising along on a train, heading off a cliff, unless someone like you has the presence of mind to kindly wake them up. One thing that makes Christians very fruitful is this keen awareness of the danger people are in. And so listen to Spurgeon's caring response to the threat of judgment. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. You see what a clear view of the danger does to someone? It puts a fire in their belly with the gospel. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about being bold with the gospel, being unashamed with it. We also need to be clear about why. Paul's made it clear. And so today the word is surrender. We surrender and we urge all those we love around us 
who are willing to listen to do the same. You can't force surrender on other people. You can't force the Bible down people's throats. But we can warn them lovingly, these words, verses 11 and 12, no one, not even one, no one, no one, all together, no one, not even one. You know, I recently had a mild injury, but it was annoying and persisting enough that I found myself saying, Lord, would you please heal this? I'm over it. It's just annoying. But Romans 3 has been doing its work in me in the last couple of weeks, helping me to see what matters more importantly. And so each time I say, Lord, please heal this physical thing, I'm reminded to more earnestly say, Lord, will you please heal my sinful heart? For every prayer about aches and pain, circumstances, you might pray ten prayers about your greater problem of sin. If you think your greatest problem is your job, your kids, your health, your finances, this or that person, then does not verse 18 describe you that there is no real fear of God before your eyes? Your biggest problem is not your husband, your ex-wife, your mortgage, your workload, your circumstance, though action might be needed in all of these areas. It's your sin. First, then, a good person you are not. We are not. Second, if you listen and watch, humans are thoroughly unrighteous. So Paul's now pointing to some evidence. If we're wondering, explain Paul. As a species, Paul notes, following scripture, that our words betray us all the time. Many years ago, I hung up the phone from what was a really peculiar phone call with an older man from a church that I'd been in in the past. Now, I think I was pretty polite on the phone. But as I was hanging up, I said, what was that? And then I realized the phone hadn't hung up yet. Now, if I wasn't caught out, I'd have thought nothing of my hypocrisy. The embarrassment of getting caught was what upset me. Lord, have mercy, not because I've been caught, but because I have two faces. Now, no offense intended, but who among us could come out shining if we were constantly secretly recorded? You know those moments in videos when you think, did I say that while that was being recorded? Our words allow ourselves and others to overhear some of the ingratitude in our hearts, the impurity, the unkindness, the waywardness, discontentment. The wise aren't those who pretend their hearts are pure. The wise in Proverbs are those who have a better control of their tongue and what their tongues let out. The heart should be a wellspring of life, but it's more like a cesspit of death. I work in the lower ground office in the back of the hall, and I overhear a lot of swearing and bitterness and anger from my church office, usually not from the other staff, more from the footpath outside as people just go past, either on the phone or talking with others, to each other sometimes or about others. What God hears from humans leads him to conclude in verse 13, Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths. Jesus says as much in Mark 7 himself. He says what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. 
All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so to the the extent that there is no fear of God before our eyes, our mouths tend to give us away. But remember, friends, God's call in here, here in Romans is not to pull our socks up and try harder tomorrow. Romans 3 is a call to surrender ahead of the very good news that will be delivered next Sunday. For now, to be still and know that he is God is a call to drop your weapons, drop your resistance, stop pretending you've got your life in order, and so you can relax about defending your character from God or others. We're to let God be God and dare not stand before him if all we've got is our so-called merit. Don't do that. Thirdly, God's word does not approve us, it exposes us. Paul concludes the whole argument that began in chapter 1, verse 18, where, remember, he said, the wrath of God is being revealed against our world for all its ungodliness. We suppress the truth. We keep God away, pretend he's not there. And here he says in chapter 3, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, He's spoken about the law of the written law of the word, but also the law on our consciences, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, here's another one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. When God defines righteousness, the humble person realizes those words are not describing us or sheltering us or approving us. They are written to humble us, to prepare us for his mercy. Verse 20, through the law we become conscious of our sin, that no one in God's court will be declared righteous legally. Sure, we might have done some pretty good things, but it's not going to be an innocent verdict. The law, the Lord Jesus, the gospel, the church, the Lord's supper, baptism, They're not meant to build up our self-righteousness, but to smash it. Do not the law, the gospel, the church, the Lord's Supper, baptism, don't they all point wonderfully away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus and his merits? And so if God were to ask you today, why should I let you into heaven? I often have that pastor's fear that There may be some among us at DPC who start trying to say things about our own works in response to that question, our own merit. Well, because I went to church, because I knew about Jesus, because I tried hard to be a good Christian for so long. We must remove ourselves from the start of that sentence and put Jesus there. Why may I enter heaven? Because Jesus saved me. Because Jesus is my righteousness. Because Jesus' death covers my sin. Because the reason, the risen Jesus is my hope in life and death. And having said all this today, I'm still concerned there may be 5% of us go out of this building thinking, well, I'm not as bad as all that. And God knows it. I think I'll be all right. I go to DPC and I'm on three of the rosters. That's got to count for something. And at this point, I wouldn't know what to say except to say one more time that your so-called good works will not save you. It's a terrible thing going to someone's deathbed knowing that they might not yet be clear with the gospel. And ironically, the more we grow as Christians, 
the more aware we are of our need for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. It's not as though we ever grow out of it. We see more and more our need of it. Every week as I'm studying the Bible, preparing the sermon, you would think this would be a morally safe and spiritually healthy place where sin won't be in the room. But it seems every week I catch evil motives and thoughts entering my mind while working on the sermon. And I shake my head and I say, I'm sorry, Lord. Again, I see my corruption and I surrender to your mercy. Will you still use this sermon in spite of who I am? Friends, I wonder what business do you need to do with God today? It may be you need to go for a long walk this afternoon and confess your sin and your deep need for God like you've never done before. Or perhaps as you've never done for a long time. It might be a long overdue apology to your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents. It might be the decision to more transparently let others know from now on that you're actually someone who struggles with righteousness and to share with them what you do about that. What does surrender look like for you? What business do you need to do with God today?